0: we're going to talk about meningitis. There are two main types of meningitis, viral and bacterial. When you see the word meningitis, break it down and you see meninges and itis. So this is telling us that this is inflammation of the meninges. What happens is the virus or the bacteria gains access to the brain through the cerebrospinal fluid. Patients who have traumatic brain injuries and have fractures because of those injuries Um, are at risk for meningitis because that fracture could allow open access to the meninges, Um, especially if we notice CSF fluid leaking out. That should be a red flag to you that um, this patient could possibly get meningitis because now there's this opening and this connection that has been made uh, between the outside of the body and the brain. When we see fluid leaking out of a patient's nose or ears, especially if they've had a traumatic brain injury, um, there are some tests that we can do to see if this is indeed CSF. We can do something called a halo test where we put the secretions on um, some type of filter paper. And usually what happens is the blood and the CSF will separate and create like a halo. So that could be an indication of this is CSF fluid versus if it wasn't, all of the secretions would just stay mixed together. We can also test for glucose. If it tests positive for glucose, typically this means that it's um, likely to be CSF fluid because if it were nasal secretions, it wouldn't test positive for glucose because there's not that much glucose in nasal secretions. So if if we knew that the patient had CSF leaking, then we would be on high alert Uh, for the possibility of them getting meningitis as a complication of that. Let's kind of talk about each of the different types, the viral versus um, bacterial. And do know that there's also fungal and protozoal meningitis. They're just not quite as common. So that's why we're going to focus on the viral and bacterial. So viral meningitis is caused by a whole host of viruses. Um, It typically occurs in children under the age of five can be caused by the enterovirus, the mumps, herpes, and even HIV can cause viral meningitis. When we talk about bacterial, obviously this is gonna be caused by different bacteria. Some of the main uh, bacteria that can cause this are Neisseria meningitis, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and also um, Haemophilus influenza which is actually a bacteria. This is not the flu virus. As far as assessment for these two, for you know, just meningitis in general, they really have the same assessment features. It's just going to be more severe symptoms in bacterial versus viral. So some of the things that we could see in infants, because like I said, they could get viral meningitis. We could see a fever, rash, irritability, loss of appetite, trouble waking. When we talk about children and adults um, and things that we may see, no matter what type of meningitis they have, they could also have a fever, trouble waking, sleepiness, headache, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting. They could also have a stiff neck, and we call that nuchal rigidity. There are two assessment tests that you can do, um, so you may see or read about those um they're not used quite as common it's not like a definitive answer like if you have if you're positive for this test then you're going to you have meningitis it's just one of those things we could do as the nurse and then report to the doctor as we collect all the data and they kind of help determine what's going on um and the, both of these relate to the neck stiffness and it's kernig's and brudzinski's so these are two signs that you could do i don't expect you to know how to do them But just know that those are associated with nuchal rigidity or neck stiffness, and it's something we could use to help um, assess for meningitis. Other things that we could see, um, there could be eye issues, photophobia, or sensitivity to light. They could also have nystagmus, abnormal eye movements. Nystagmus is often seen as like a twitching of back and forth or up and down of the eyes. We could see abnormal motor responses like weakness. Um, There could be cranial nerve dysfunction. They can also have um, a short attention span, personality, or behavioral changes. With it being the meninges in the brain, we would expect that there might be a severe headache associated with this. And just some generalized aches and pains. And they can also have a red macular rash if they have meningococcal meningitis. That's usually the only one that causes the rash. Other things that we want to assess with these patients if they have meningitis, no matter what the type, um, is a neurological assessment. That would be part of our routine interventions is doing a neuroassessment. We could include the Glasgow Coma Scale in that as well. We would be assessing vitals, um, assessing them more frequently, especially if the the patient is not stable, assessing intake and output. Uh, We want to ensure that airway breathing are doing good, so respiratory assessments. And patients who have bacterial meningitis especially are at increased risk of increasing intracranial pressure. So we would want to assess for that. Remember, one of the first signs of increased intracranial pressure is a change in level of consciousness. So part of our interventions could be to help um, improve that increased pressure Uh, Remembering the head of bed, that could help us. Um, Also, just keeping the room dark, calm environment. Uh, The dark room could also help with the photophobia, but just this calm environment to help decrease um, the stress on the body, which can help decrease that possibility of increased pressure in the brain. Other things that we um, would want to assess for is something that can happen with uh, meningitis, especially bacterial, is they could have some vascular changes. So the, the, um, the bacteria can end up getting into the bloodstream and cause something called meningococcal septicemia. And what happens is once it gets into the bloodstream, it causes damage to the blood vessels and they become leaky. And we see what looks like big bruises on the patient's skin Um, But it's actually just a sign of poor perfusion because now the blood is leaking out of the vessels and shunting towards the major organs in the body. So meningococcal septicemia is a definite bad complication of meningitis, especially the bacterial, because this could cause patients to lose their limbs. Um, So that would not be a good sign if we saw that. So doing a vascular assessment with these patients would be helpful so that you could catch on to those things. As far as what type of isolation precaution would I have to put these patients in? um, You would have to, for viral, it's not so worrisome. Um, Usually this is self-limiting. You're just kind of and some symptom management, and most of the time these patients go home and they're not in the hospital at all. So there's not really any isolation other than your standard precautions and hand washing to help prevent the transmission. But with bacterial, that um, is a lot, it's, it's more contagious and it's more severe if you do acquire it. So bacterial, these patients are usually kept in the hospital. And for that first 24 hours at least, while those antibiotics are getting in, we'll keep them in respiratory or droplet isolation. And this requires that you wear the surgical mask. Um, So we would use that for bacterial meningitis for sure. And if the patient has to leave the room, maybe for a test, then we would um, put a mask on the patient so that they don't spread as they are transported around the hospital. And then you'll use standard precautions for um, patients with bacterial too. So it's standard and respiratory or droplet for bacterial. So how can we prevent this besides, you know, the hand washing and just keeping things clean? There are vaccines, um, and these are especially useful for preventing bacterial meningitis. We've got the meningococcal vaccine, which is recommended between the ages of 11 and 12, and then a booster at the age of 16. There's also the pneumonia vaccine, because remember, uh, streptococcus pneumonia can cause bacterial meningitis. And teaching patients to get the hemophilus influenza vaccine or the Hib vaccine, because that is a bacteria that could also cause bacterial meningitis. So that would be some good primary prevention um, that we could teach the patients to help prevent the spread and um, to help prevent the spread of meningitis and in acquiring it or getting it in the first place. Um, I think the last thing I want to mention, I don't remember if I said this yet or not, um, but with a viral, as far as treatment um, medications go, like I said, you might have to give them IV fluids, um, or they might just go home and you encourage fluids. Sometimes they'll be placed on an antiviral, especially if the herpes virus causes the viral meningitis, because that's a virus that lives dormant in your body, um, so it never goes away, so they might be on an antiviral. Uh, for viral meningitis in some situations. But overall, I think that's about it for meningitis.